Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest, uh, her name is Yael David. She's the lab head and assistant member uh, in the chemical biology program at uh, Sloan Kettering Kettering Memorial Center, Memorial Cancer Center. Uh, She's also an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology at Weill Cornell Medical College. so we're going to talk about epigenetic regulation of DNA. Of DNA. Uh, so yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, just for people that don't know, what, what is epigenetics and uh, what does that mean for us and our DNA? Yeah. So um, I guess we all know that all the gene, all the cells in our body can be genetic, and, uh, but different cells have very different phenotype and very different function. So in fact, what determines each um, fate or, or function of these cells are these epigenetic regulation. And epigenetic just means above the genetics because these are regu- regulatory processes that occur above the genetic information. And those you know, include a variety um, of pathways, including um, pathways that change the way DNA is displayed in the, in the nucleus. It recruits different proteins. Uh, but specifically, what I'm working on is trying to understand how the way DNA is packaged in the cell is affected by its environment. So basically how um, environmental changes are changing um, chromatin, which is how DNA is packaged. Yeah, um, from what I've learned, uh, DNA is not just sitting there statically in the cell. It's constantly like raveling and unraveling and looping and moving and, you know, grooving. It's like, a, uh, you know, all the time. Is, is that an accurate picture or what, what's a semi-accurate picture of what's going on? Um, it's actually, it's more accurate than inaccurate. Uh, there are regions that are a little more static, and those are uh, termed heterochromatin. And those are the regions that are either function as a sort of like a structural anchor um, for these chromosomes or to the nuclear membrane. Um, and some regions are what we call temporally, uh, especially temporally closed. So those are a- areas that are more dynamically open and closed. And there are areas that, like you said, are very dynamic. So they're constantly opening and unraveling because these are areas that um, the cells constantly need. So the cells constantly need to move, to eat, to breathe. Um, so the, the, the proteins that handle these processes are constantly being uh, transcribed. And so I would say um, there's a lot of interesting um, regulations there, right there, because in that gray area, because the areas that are dynamic, they're open in most cells. And the areas that are structurally, constitutively uh, heterochromatin, I would call them, are always going to function structural. But it is those gray areas where where there is, um, they're open in some cells and not in the other that really gives the unique signature for specific cells. Oh, okay. So yeah, um, that makes sense. Epigenetics change gene expression. So in all cells of different cell types, you would expect very different epigenetics going on. Exactly. So what are some of the methods by which uh, epigenetics change gene expression? I've heard of methylation, I've heard of histone deacetylation. 
you describe those two and then other yes. others predominantly? I'm gonna I'm gonna go sort of like from from the highest uh, resolution to, to the lowest because uh, epigenetic changes start with modifications to the DNA itself. So the DNA itself, we always think of it as we see as a constant uh, building block, but in fact, DNA itself can undergo modifications. And these modifications can both change the local structure of the DNA, as well as recruit specific effector proteins that will, that will assume these, these little structures. So DNA modifications, and people often talk about methylation, but in fact, in recent years now, we know there are other um, DNA modification, some of them are enzymatic and some are non-enzymatic, which is some of the work that my lab is in. On the second level, DNA is packaged in the nucleus using these packaging proteins called the histone. And what the histones do is they basically form these cationic disks that are positively charged and the negatively charged DNA just wraps around. So I always, I always use the sort of like the, the fire hose or the garden hose um, analogies that we can wrap a lot of um, DNA on this histone disk, and that allows a high order compaction. And for many, many years, people thought that histones are completely inert, so they're just packaging protein. But in fact, um, you know, work in the last, I would say, 20, 30 years revealed that histones are very dynamically regulated. So in fact, the way these cationic disks breathe um, actually changes the accessibility of the DNA. So these are histone modifications. Now, most of the modifications that I call them these little flags, right? If you, um, your DNA is a library and you walk into the library and you really just wanna, you know, pick a line in a book, how are you gonna find that line in the book? So in that way, histone modifications are some of these like post-its or, or sticky notes that stick out of the, of the compacted chromatin and, and tell the effector proteins, come open, read me, read this line. So these oh, are like, very uh, fine-tuning uh, regulatory mechanisms. Yeah, question. Um, so if I think of, uh, you know, a histone as like a spool that mm -hmm. thread goes on, does the thread, do the threads lay on top of each other around the spool or are they only side by side? And then can uh, spools line up side by side yes, to align exactly. threads to read across multiple spools, for instance? So you can think of every you know, sort of um, cationic disk, this histone optimer, as one spool. And 150 base pair of DNA wraps around it. But then you can start stacking the spools because they're very flat and they stack on top of it. And they form these um, high-order structures. They start from these solenoid structures and then they, they undergo further compaction. In fact, there's a lot of controversy on the field of what exactly are these intermediate structures because people try to understand them in order to target them in order to uh, control them better. But there are different levels of these higher order compaction. The first one is what we call the mononucleosum, which is just the cationic histone disk with 150 base pair of DNA. And then you start having these arrays where there are multiple, multiple nucleosomes packaged on each. All the way to what we know, you know, people always imagine a chromosome like this X-shaped structure, but in fact, it only exists in this highly compacted X-shaped structure in a very small fraction of the time, it, it, it actually during cell division, where all the DNA is compacted. Most of the time, it looks like a spaghetti in a bowl. <laughs> oh, really? Huh. Yes. Interesting. Okay, so the, the action of histones, the spooling and unspooling, that is a major part of uh, epigenetic regulation of gene expression? Yeah, so, you, so you can think about it if you have this, um, you know, this, this, electrostatic interactions between the histones and the DNA. Now, if you block a positive charge, right, or even turn it into a negative charge, now you're starting to disrupt these interactions. So in that way, uh, that's how many um, acetylation and other acylations actually work 
um, to decompact chromatin. So many people know about HDAC inhibits as drugs, and HDACs are histone deacetylases. So those are the enzymes that remove acetylation. So if you remove acetylation, you actually compact the DNA, right? Because you reveal the positive charge again. So in many, for example, in neurodegenerative diseases where you have um, you know, genes that are downregulated, especially memory and learning, if you uh, treat them with HDAC inhibitor, uh, HDAC inhibitors, you prevent the compaction and you allow the chromatin to stay open and transcribed. And that's how you enhance transcription of many genes specifically, but the hope is that it hits these learning and memory genes, key neuro. Um, but Where, there are other, uh, so these are... Mm -hmm. Who's the... So uh, I, just wanna, I just wanna mention that these are biophysical sort of changes, but there are um, modifications that change chromatin, not directly. So they don't change the charge of the histones or the DNA, but in fact act as these, what I call them, these sticky notes or these, these flags. And what they do is recruit specific effector proteins, usually the transcription machinery that knows to start transcribing these regions. So these are mostly uh, methylation and ubiquination, which are uh, enzymatically added modifications. Yeah, it's weird. What, you know, where's the agency in the coordination of, you know, the, the epigenetics across the whole DNA? It's weird. Like, you know, how could, how could that be orchestrated where these areas are compacted away, these are not, these are methylated, these are not, and how it changes. <laughs> That's, uh... it's, it's complicated. You hit the holy grail of epigenetic uh, regulation research because what people, you know, initially did, they took this original stem cells where it's still undefined, right? The zygote, the fertilized egg. And then they start following the changes that happen on histone. And a lot of these changes are hereditary. So that's what defines it as, as epigenetics. So much of the orchestration is actually inherited. That's why um, even though epigenetic regulation is, more, is very dynamic, it has a very strong heritage component. So you inherit from your uh, mostly your, your mom, but also uh, your dad, a lot of in, information, epigenetic. Now, what, um, how things are orchestrated. So what is the hierarchy? What initiates, what, what we call nucleates these epigenetic states is the subject of many people's uh, research. Some people say transcription factors or um, pioneering factors. So these are proteins that bind the DNA. They initiate a cascade that sustains these epigenetic events. Some people say um, it's, it's these large modifications. So ubiquitination, ubiquitin is a large uh, protein that acts as a modification. Um, so because it has many faces, it can actually recruit many different proteins. So people think those, pro those modifications create major changes. Um, some people like me <laughs> think that there are environmental cues that orchestrate these changes. So because your cells, they don't live in isolation. They have a cellular microenvironment and they also have a metabolic state that constantly changes. And what my lab found is that a lot of these reactive metabolites, sugars, um, and chemical moieties um, actually react with histones directly. So there's no regulations that is, is classical biochemical events where you have a cascade of, of enzymes that initiate a signal. It's actually the direct reaction, chemical reaction between the, the chemical moieties that exist in the cell all the time. They're constantly manufactured by the cell, they're taken up by the cell, and those directly react with chromatin, both histone and DNA, and change local and global structure. And Jeez. the reason why, yeah, the reason why I really like this, this model is because it starts explaining things that, have, that 
people couldn't explain before, like, you know, links between diabetes and cancer, between diabetes and neurodegeneration, because now you have these long-term exposures to um, robust changes in sugar concentration or in metabolic state of these cells um, that drives their, their epigenetic program. So it changes their fate through epigenetic mechanisms that no one knew how they were initiated. Some of the things yeah, we found uh, is the sugars, for example, directly change in architecture. Yeah. Um, where does the selectivity lie in affecting these histones versus those, you know, like, how can Enzymatically you tell? are non-enzymatic. So in non-enzymatic, there is no selectivity. The selectivity is like a chemical reaction. It's a matter of concentration of the reactants and their availability, accessibility. So regions that are more accessible, we react more readily. Regions that are less accessible will react slower. Uh, but regions that are open, they usually have higher turnover. So it's like sort of balance between. In terms of enzymatic machinery uh, or enzymatic modifications, that's a really interesting question, question because it's the same, could be the same methylation. And it's only a methyl group, carbon and three hydrogens. It's very, very small. Um, it's installation in a site-specific manner. So in a specific region on the histone, and then in a specific region on chromatin can drive changes in the transcriptional program of the cell, which is fascinating. And exactly how that is regulated is still unknown. Like I said, some people believe it's um, pioneering transcription factors. Some people think you just inherit these methylation states uh, for in cell, during cell division. Um, and some people think it's, um, it's related to external signals, uh, neighboring cells, from hormones, uh, from metabolites. Yeah, still, still a big question. Are there, um, are there areas that not only are... Um inaccessible because they're tightly wrapped around histones but they also are methylated so it's like two layers of of inhibition to expression are there other yeah. places like that in the genome yeah so uh, the way i think about all these modifications because um you know each of the modification by itself might not be robust enough so i i look at them as these on off switches but it's actually their combination that forms a dial and that allows a gradient of, of reaction. So everything from completely non-transcribed regions to completely trans transcribed. And uh, this, this gradient is, is what allows this really fine tuning of, of um, the cellular transcriptional program. Um, now, some regions um, are inaccessible completely and the cells never want to have them accessible. So it methylates the DNA, it compacts the histones, it does everything it can. And in fact, many times, the, um, what happens in cancer, for example, is despite this triple you know, safeguard on these regions, right, on these genes that, for example, you only need when you're an embryo. But after that, they drive cell growth exponentially, and you don't need it when your cells are differentiated when you're an adult. Uh, so those are oncogenes, right? Those drive cancer. And what happens is cancer changes in the cell uh, expose these regions despite all the, the, the protection and exposure of such a gene by itself can drive diseases. Hmm. Is there, are there any other mechanisms? There's methylation, there's, you know, wrapping around histones. Are there other types of modification that uh, inhibit expression? Yeah. So for example, modification on histones come in different flavors. So there's ubiquination, one of the core histones called H2A that is highly associated with for example, um, X inactivation, chromosome X. Uh, there is methylation that occurs on the histones themselves that are associated with uh, repression and, and chromatin compaction. And these modifications by, by themselves, the way they do it is by recruiting these proteins 
that oligomerize, for example, and they just hold these regions together. So the mechanism, what maybe controls it is the methylation, but in fact, what holds these regions compacted are these external proteins that scaffold the chromatin and, and basically holds it together. And for example, if you need them, these regions, uh, cell cycle, different cell cycle or differentiation, then you, many times the cell has to degrade them to actually remove them from, from chromatin in order to allow these regions to express. Also, that secondary structure is also governed and can be modulated to you know, to, to package the histones in ways that are accessible exactly. or inaccessible. She's crazy. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> has, has anyone, um, what if you took, let's say, all the human cell types and mm-hmm. looked at their epigenetic modifications on all of them, and therefore maybe you could figure out, okay, these modifications correlate with this phenotypic, you know, expression. Like, oh, I see, these liver cells have these modifications, therefore that allows them to do this, and these brain cells do that and these, you know, sperm cells do that. I mean, that, that might be like a good map to make. Yep. So uh, there, there were a couple of initiatives that tried to do exactly that. Um, so one of them um, was about 10 years ago where people didn't redo the experiments, but they basically collected the experiments that were already done in the literature into one sort of um, consortium. And that allows to compare between, uh, you know, between different cells, and different in the same states or in the same organism, different cell types. And that was very, very effective. But as you mentioned, I think it's important to sort of do it in a high throughput, what we call high throughput um, manner so you can have an internal comparison because sometimes, you know, in the in this consortium, this original consortium, you know, cells were treated in a different way and the origin, different antibodies and assays. Um, so there was an, an initiative that, in fact, uh, a, a brilliant bioinformatician from Sloan Kettering, Donna Pierre, was part of, uh, that is working on the human atlas. So basically mapping exactly what you said, taking all these different cell types and mapping their DNA methylation, their histone modification. We didn't even get to talk about RNA modifications that are now becoming clear that they're becoming part of what we call the the epigenetic language or, or code. Uh, so modifications on RNA can, can regulate transcription. Um, their pioneering factor, their an analysis of higher order compaction. So the chromatin architecture in each cell type to li- really probe these accessible regions, these inaccessible regions. Um, so yeah, there is a joint effort worldwide to try and do that, but it requires a lot of resource. And um, I think there are private and public sources that, that help fund this. It takes a lot of dedication, many, many different cell types and the stages, essays that I do in order to get the full picture of their epigenetic state. Yeah, I was, I was imagining for some reason in my head, if I was really wealthy and I specified like <laughs> upon my death that my body would be deep frozen and then I would pay for that every cell type sequenced and the epigenetics looked at so you can get a complete picture of one person of, you know, their, all, their phenotypic expression and all their epigenetics, uh, you know, I wonder what that would cost, but. Some, some wealthy person um, can probably stipulate that. <laughs> I'm willing to pitch it if you find the right uh, donor. <laughs> um, but then you have to start thinking about, okay, so this is one person. This person, did they smoke? Were they exposed to UV? Did they take any medications? Were they obese? So and every little change, environmental change, can actually change the epigenetic landscape in your cells. So 
in many ways, it's sort of like um, trying to um, decide whether the cherries are good by eating them one by one, right? And eventually, you you basically uh, you you lose that that information because you you each subject is a whole experiment. I believe yeah, there's so a lot I, of information I, there, but there are more, even more layer of complexity. Yeah, it would be a good start though. Like you know, if I let's say I smoke cigarettes, do all my cells change? In a in a in a certain manner in concert in response to it, or just my lung cells and you know mm -hmm. my skin cells and maybe maybe like ten of my cell types and not you know the other 190 change or you know they change in different ways. I mean it gets crazy, but we need some baseline to figure something out. I can tell you that this is one of the things that my lab is working on, and uh, we're very very interested in understanding not just that. And again, I'll I'll tease you with another layer of complexity because you know your our body is we see it as our body, but it's it's probably just a vehicle for you know millions and millions of microorganisms, right? Of the microbiome, of different microbes that, that live in our skin. So even those differences can make a huge effect on your your cells, right? On the metabolites that are accessible to the balance in your body. Um, so that's another thing. So for example, that we're looking at, can you mm -hmm. change? the microenvironment or the, the 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 i would say the epigenetic state of these cells by changing the microenvironment due to changes in microbiome because yeah they i forgot about that the, yeah i forgot about that like your brain can <laughs> melt off if if you try to contemplate all the complexity like you'd freak out yeah because exactly right, your microbiome all the stuff that that produces i mean those metabolites could easily affect your epigenetics so like you know it's it's just crazy exactly so I would say we start teasing it one by one, these mechanisms. Um, we're trying to understand how each of these metabolites is affecting chromatin in one cell. And then we're trying, um, as chemical biologists, actually, I think the, the one really nice advantage we have is we don't succumb to existing tools. Uh, we, uh, we actually develop new chemical tools that will allow us to uh, you know, dive deeper into the, the biochemical mechanisms and the fundamental mechanism um, of how these modifications affect chromatin. And we do it by, for example, developing small molecular probes that will allow us to um, trace and enrich some of these modifications to figure out where they happen and how, what is their, their localization, how is that related to transcription. But we also developed a really, really, I would say, powerful methodology where we synthesize these modified histones and we put them in cells. And then we ask the question, how this specific modification at this specific site is changing, you know, the local uh, chromatin state, transcription, as well as cell fate. And now we, we sort of made a huge breakthrough and now we do this in animals and we can ask, how is this affecting behavior? So we change their neurons, we change their epigenetic state in the, in the neurons and we're asking how is that affecting behavior can epigenetic changes drive schizophrenia drug related things like yeah um, you mentioned rna and i've heard that origina rna is also subject to epigenetic modification have, have you found that and what happens to rna and how is it modified if so <laughs> yeah so it's a it's a very, very interesting and active line of research. I have many good friends that, that work on it. Unfortunately, I had to draw the line somewhere, so I don't work currently uh, on RNA modifications. But it's true that similar to what happened with histone modification, that for many years, people just assumed that histones are inert, they just what they are. 
Um, and, um, and the huge breakthrough was in starting to understand our modification. The same happened with RNA. For many, many years, people assumed that RNA is just ribonucleic acid, they can fold, they can translate it, and that's it. But in fact, there's a whole world of modifications that happen in RNA that can change not only their half-life, which will obviously affect the amount of protein that's generated from each transcript, but also their fold, and that can loop back into epigenetic regulation. Some non-coding RNA actually rebind chromatin and change structure um, by interacting with these higher order structures, either usually stabilizing them, but uh, destabilizing them. Oh. Just when you thought well, things can get more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, yeah, it's crazy. So what's, um, what, what big questions are you trying to answer you know, with your research? Um, so what drives my research program, uh, I would say that it, it goes in two lanes. Um, I'm very, very interdisciplinary. So I'm always interested in expanding the toolbox and um, in, in, I would say, scientific toolbox studying epigenetics, uh, because I think um, many times the best or the greatest breakthrough comes with a new, come with a tool. And as, as someone who was trained as a biologist early on and then transitioned into chemistry, I was hitting that glass ceiling of lack of chemical tools and lack of understanding of how to use the existing. So I work a lot in trying to lower the barrier between chemists and biologists by developing these toolboxes. Um, and on the other hand, I try to utilize these tools to understand exactly how epigenetic changes in respond to environment. So it's not just, you know, another enzyme that changes one modification. I'm trying to understand or to crack the, 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 the communication between what happens in the, in the body, in the blood, in the microenvironment, and how cells respond to it uh, through these epigenetics. I'm particularly interested in metabolism and these reactive sugars, again, because it speaks back to my training in chemistry. Because um, biologists of, often think of chromatin, as, a, as I mentioned, like spaghetti in a bowl. But in fact, it's, a spaghetti, it's not a spaghetti in a bowl. It's spaghetti in a round bottom flask where there are tons of chemicals there and a perfect incubator for these reactions. Um, so sometimes I would say um, biologists tend to forget that most of the events in the cell are driven by chemicals. Um, and that's what I wanted to unravel. How is chemistry occurring in the cell? And can we use powerful tools to probe it? Well. Very good. It sounds like I'll have to have you back for, uh, no, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. So, you know, I know there's a big, you know, you're at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So mm-hmm. obviously a big part of what you do looks at cancer. Another part that like you said talk looks at all metabolism. about cancer because I'll just yeah. give you um, a cliffhanger sure. um, because a lot of what I work on is understanding, right? The link between environment and cell fate. And we found a lot of these chemical reactions happen on chromatin, damage chromatin and in fact, we think it drives uh, cellular aging and protein aging, um, but it also creates uh, damage to chromatin that can drive cancer. Um, but the, that's not the cliffhanger. That was an obvious one. The cliffhanger is we identified enzymatic mechanisms that repair damage. And once, in fact, a paper came out 36 minutes ago, <laughs> one of our papers, just uh, hmm. uh, the embargo just, was just lifted, uh, where we found that there are enzymes that rewrite these, uh, these damages and they protect chromatin from undergoing further damage. So what they do is they're able to sort of uh, clean up chromatin 
to prevent for to prevent the or to reverse the damage that already occurred, as well as protect it from undergoing further damage. And these proteins that uh, were thought to be um, to drive cancer, but no one really know why. Now we know because once you um, are in a state a high metabolic state like cancer, you're constantly generating these very reactive metabolites. So you need more of the enzymes that will help you, you know, sort of repair all these damages. And what we show is that when you downregulate these enzymes in cancer, you actually prevent cancer growth. So now these are uh, targets, but not just, you know, some of them were known targets, but now you understand why they're, understand how they drive. So they basically, we call them the garbage men. Because if you're on the upper east side and, and there, no one picks up the garbage in August, there's piles yeah. of garbage and it smells and everyone suffers. So Man. those are the, those are the enzymes that clean up the garbage and prevent the, you know, the nice tension and the upper east side. Um, but if you let sure. the garbage build up, eventually the cells will die from basically accumulated, accumulated damage. Yeah. Hey, well, very good. Uh, you know, if you're up for it, I'll have to have you back sometime soon because there's uh, at least two more huge topics. But um, <laughs> what's, what's the best way people can learn more about your lab and your work and uh, get in touch? Sure. So first of all, my lab, obviously, I uh, have a Sloan Kettering website. Um, I'm very, very active on social media. Our Twitter account is always producing uh, gems. So um, like I said, I'm late in tweeting about our paper by uh, just a few minutes, but uh, okay. Um, yeah, email me. Um, everything, all the information is online. I'm always happy to discuss science in all levels. Okay, very good. Well, yeah, thank you for coming very much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. <laughs> if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.